Hello everyone, it's Bill Thompson, T-Bill, and welcome to Plain Market Talk, where I will provide a straightforward interpretation and analysis of current market news based on my background as a retired Wall Street stockbroker with almost 50 years of experience. And I will also provide business lessons to help you become much more successful with your personal finance, trading, and investments. So let's get started. Hey everyone, it's Bill Thompson, T-Bill. Welcome to Plain Market Talk. Today is Friday, March 17, 2023. Okay, we're going to spend uh, some time today on the banking situation, what's going on there. So I'll explain what triggered the crisis, uh, basically how banks even work, uh, and then also talk about what is going on. Uh, today, also continuing on with option contracts, I'm going to talk about naked calls, uh, writing naked calls. Uh, so we'll talk about that. And then on the next session, I'm going to actually talk about uh, basically what are called spreads. Uh, I'll start out with, uh, I'll be covering debit call spreads and credit call spreads on the next couple of sessions. Uh, and then I'll move over to, to put option contracts a little bit more. So we do have that. All right. So as far as what's going on with the markets at the moment, well, they are down on continuing concerns about what's going on in the banking sector, although the markets are generally up for the week. Uh, but right now, uh, right now it's uh, 1125 in the morning Eastern time. We have the Dow Jones Industrial Average down 1.25%, S&P 500 down 1.37%, NASDAQ Composite down 1.20%. So not, nothing uh, earth-shaking going on there. Uh, as far as the week, uh, the Dow is actually slightly down for the week, down 0.1%, uh, but the S&P 500 is up 1.6% so far for the week, and NASDAQ Composite actually up 4.5%. Okay, so again, we'll get to the banking stuff here in just a minute. Uh, uh, let me go, actually, let me do this. Let me just go right to the option stuff first, because this isn't going to take too long today, and then I'll get on to the spreads next time. Okay, so here's what we've got. Um, basically... Uh, I, I covered last time, covered calls, the last couple of sessions. Uh, you own a stock at, say, $50 a share, and you actually write a call contract. You sell the privilege to somebody to maybe buy the stock from you at, say, $55 a share, and they will pay you for that privilege. Okay, so basically what happens there is if the stock does not make it to $55 a share by the expiration period of the contract, well, you just get to keep the money, the premium that you were paid. Uh, if it goes above $55, however, somebody will call it away from you at 55, but you still made 10%, uh, so sold at 10% higher than it was. So those are covered calls. They're considered actually fairly low risk um, strategies. Now, what you can also do is a naked call. You go ahead and um, sell the right to somebody, write a call. Somebody can buy a stock from you at a guaranteed price for a period of time, but you don't own the underlying stock. Now, this is one of the most risky of all option strategies. Um, it can work. It just has a lot of risks. So let me give you an example. I'm going to use a volatile stock here today. I'm going to use Tesla because that stock goes up and down a lot. Now, their trading symbol is T-S-L-A, Tom, Sam, Larry, Apple. Okay, so what I'm going to do, like I've done before, I'll go to the website of the Chicago Board Options Exchange, cboe.com, and, and then what you do is click on data up top. When the uh, next screen comes up, click on options. 
and then enter the symbol TSLA and then click on the green search box. Now let's say I wanna write covered calls that'll expire in June. So go over to the right expiration, look for 2023 June, okay. The stock is right now at about $179 a share, $179.07, but let's just say 179 to round it off, okay. I'm looking at these call option contracts. Now you can get a lot of money for writing one of these things because the volatility factor built into the price, Vega coefficient. Okay, so I'm looking like at a 180 strike price. Now the stock is at 179. Let's say you think Tesla's gonna go down over the next few months. Um, you think it's gonna go down. And again, you don't own the stock, but you think it's going to go down. So what you do is you go ahead and write a, um, 180 strike price, naked call. Uh, it expires third Friday in June, which happens to be June 16th. Looking at the bid price, you would sell it to bid. Uh, it's 22.2. Now you multiply that by 100 shares. Uh, you pick up $2,220 uh, from doing that. That's just deposited in your account. Uh, so that, that happens immediately. Okay, so now what happens if you're correct and this stock goes down uh, or even stays where it is at 179 between now and um, June 16th, this contract will expire worthless. The other party has no reason to buy the stock from you at 180 if they can buy it, you know, less expensively, cheaper on the open market. Okay, so you get to keep the $2,220, then you can write another naked call. But here's the problem, as you might be figuring out, what if the stock goes up? Let's say it goes to $210 a share. Okay, so this investor now is gonna exercise that options contract, you know, at expiration even before, uh, saying, okay, I, I want you now to go ahead and deliver me 100 shares of Tesla stock at $180 a share. Problem is you have to go out and buy it at $210 a share, then immediately sell it to them at 180, see a $30 a share loss. And so that this can get uh, $3,000 loss, this can get pretty expensive. Because the problem is there's theoretically no limit to how high a stock can go. I mean, it could be four, five, $600 a share, see? Now there are ways you can close out the options contract. I'll talk about that stuff another day. Uh, there are protections you can use, but that's how naked calls work. So they're also called writing a short call position is the technical term, but we call them naked calls because um, you leave yourself naked to unlimited losses. So anyway, uh, so that's how that works. So again, I'll cover some more of that and also what are called spreads. That's where you write a call and buy a call on the same stock, but you don't actually own the stock. So we'll, we'll talk about that on, on the next couple of sessions. Okay, before we talk about the banks, just a few other things going on. Uh, yeah, we got um, Meta, also known as Facebook. Uh, they announced a big layoffs back in November, laying off another 10,000 uh, employees. Basically, they're running into issues with um, less advertising being bought on Facebook. You know, as inflation goes up, like individuals, companies have to spend money on other things, uh, also paying higher interest rate on debt, and they cut back on advertising. The other problem with Meta uh, is their virtual reality is not taking off the way, uh, you know, they were probably expecting. I mean, I have one of those headsets. I have an Oculus Quest 2, that's Meta's old name. I really like it, but you know, it, it is, it is uh, it's not taken off the way they expected. They're getting more competition now. 
Uh, even though PlayStation's uh, heads, new headsets, more gaming headset, where Meta's does more than gaming, uh, it's still competition. There are others out there. Uh, Apple's rumored to be bringing their virtual reality headset coming out. So we'll have to see. We'll have to see. All right, so we got that. Uh, I also saw something about Morgan Stanley. Uh, it says it's testing an open AI-powered chat box for its 16,000 financial advisors. Uh so basically what it's saying here, uh, basically it says Morgan Stanley is rolling out an advanced chatbot uh, to help the uh, bank's army of financial advisors. They said it's been development for the last year. Um, the idea is it can provide a lot of information to their retail um, sales brokers. So just briefly how that works. Um, I actually worked for that company years ago as a senior trader. Um, they were called Dean Witter at the time. But anyway, uh, yeah, the way it works, most stockbrokers are actually retail brokers. And what that means, they deal with the public. And back in the day, a lot of them worked on commission. Uh, and today, though, they more get compensated by assets under management. But to a large extent, they're still marketing and salespeople. See, I worked on the trading side. There weren't that many of us. I was a trader. Um, and so what we did something totally different. We were on the technical side. But uh, yeah, a lot of the retail brokers, I mean, the vast majority are honest, hardworking, uh, but their specialty is more marketing, sales. And so when it comes to technical financial stuff, some of them are really, really good. I mean, they know their stuff backwards and forwards. Others, you know, they know enough. Uh, but anyway, but the problem is there's just so much information out there. You know, just think of the internet for everybody. Well, you got that issue in the financial world. So what they're talking about is uh, they want to give their retail brokers, 16,000 of them. They said here in the article, the idea behind the tool is to help the bank's 16,000 or so advisors tap the bank's enormous repository of research and data. By the way, the term bank, um, uh, we have what are called commercial banks. That's like um, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo. And then we have brokerage firms. They're known as investment banks. So that's what we're talking about there. All right. So I think that could be good. Uh, you know, give them a way to just, you know, sift through the ridiculous amount of information that's actually available. Uh, that's the idea behind that. You should basically take raw data, turn it into information that can be used. All right. So we had that also. Uh, okay. So let's, um, let's talk about uh, today uh, the banking situation. All right. Here's how a bank works. You want to know how a bank works? You walk into any bank, walk up to a teller, and say, I'm thinking about depositing $10,000 in your bank for the next year. What interest rate would you give me? And the teller says, well, we can give you 1%. Okay, I'll think about it. You walk up to the next teller, say, I'm thinking about borrowing $10,000 from your bank for the next year. What interest rate would you charge me? I have an 850 credit score, which is good. And they say, okay, well, with that kind of credit score, we can give you a very competitive 14% interest. See how they do it? 1% on deposits, 14% on loans. And actually, uh, one way banks make a lot of loans is through credit cards. And the interest rates are much higher even on those. See, banks are only required to keep a small percentage of their deposits in their vaults called reserves. It varies, but over time, it's been around 3%. The idea is they know that not everybody will show up at once for their money. It'd be like a health club. If everybody showed up at the same time as a membership, you'd never get in. Okay, so here's the thing. 
So what banks do um, with the rest of the money, a good part of it they actually lend out, uh, but they don't lend it all out. Here, the problem with that is if they suddenly get where more people want their money out than they've got available, they can't suddenly bring the money back in from a 20-year loan that they made. So what banks also do is they invest their money in what's called the money market. These are financial instruments um, that come due less than a year, uh, like short-term loans to the U.S. government. But they also make longer-term loans, primarily to the U.S. government, the United States Treasury. Now, I'm going to cover bonds. These are, this is the bond market in a lot of detail on upcoming sessions. But here's basically how a bond works. We use the Treasury. Say you decide to lend the United States Treasury $1,000. Most bonds are in increments of $1,000, although you can get some for $100, but say $1,000. You lend the United States Treasury $1,000 for 10 years, and you get two promises. A rate of interest that you will earn, let's say 3%, I'm just making that number up, uh, and then at the end of 10 years, you get um, your $1,000 back. So each of the next 10 years, you'll get $30 in interest, 3% of 1,000, $300 total. And at the end of 10 years, you get your $1,000 back. Okay, simple and easy. The problem now though, is what if you need your money early? Let's say it's three years from now and you need your $1,000 back. Well, the government's not gonna pay it back to treasury for another seven years. So what you have to do is sell it to an investor on the open market. Well, what if interest rates have gone up now to 4% for similar bonds? Another investor is going to be like, why am I paying you $1,000 for a bond that pays $30 a year interest? I can go on the open market and get 40. So then what the investor might say is, I'll give you $930 for your bond. Uh, I know I'm going to get $10 less interest per year for the next seven years, uh, but then I get $1,000 back I have to make up for it at the end. I, I make another 70 from what I paid you. See, uh, by the way, it, it's not as simple as that calculation. There's a time value of money factor. Um, they're, they're calculators we use in the bond world, but uh, I'll, uh, that's a basic idea. So the thing is, even though a U.S. government bond is considered risk-free as far as default, in other words, you will get your money back because the government can print money, uh, you could still lose on a treasury bond. All right, so here's how it works. If it's a loan to the government that comes due in less than a year, uh, it's called a treasury bill. That's where my nickname comes from, Bill Thompson. They used to call me T-Bill in the brokerage industry. Uh, bill Thompson, T-Bill, treasury bill. Anyway, comes due in less than a year, it's a, it's a treasury bill. Comes due in one to 10 years, it's called a treasury note. Comes due in more than 10 years, it's called a treasury bond. All right. So with treasuries, the further out you go, like a bank CD, the higher interest you can get. All right, so here's what banks do with the treasuries. They tend to do a mixture. Uh, they, they put some of their money that they're not lending out in treasury bills, that they, they can get that money back fairly quickly. See, the shorter the maturity to when it comes due, the less it's affected by change in interest rates. They put a lot of their money into short-term treasury bills. They put some in treasury notes, and they put some in treasury bonds. All right, so here's what happened with that Silicon Valley bank. They decided, for whatever reason, it was a good idea to put a lot of their money in tr long-term treasury bonds that come due 20, 25 years, up to 30 years they can be. Um, 
because they were wanting to get higher interest. The problem, though, is the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates for the last, you know, almost two years now uh, to try to bring inflation down. As interest rates go up, it's driving down the value of those bonds. Now, as long as you hold them, it, it's fine. You'll get your money back. But that, that was the problem. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank had a, a much higher than they should have amount of money in long-term treasury bonds. Then what happened, uh, they're out in uh, San Francisco, Silicon Valley. They lend to a lot of tech companies. I guess they had a higher than usual amount of money withdrawn. They probably over lent also. And what happened, their CEO made a public statement. See, banks can usually get money from everywhere from Middle Eastern investors to governments, other banks. Uh, he made a comment publicly that, yeah, we're trying to raise money rather quickly. Well, investors got a hold of that and suddenly withdrew their money. And uh, see, back in the old days, you had to go into a bank to withdraw your money. They're called bank runs. Well, now people just picked up their phones and just start transferring their money out of um, Silicon Valley Bank to other banks. And they went into crisis within hours. And then as the word spread, more and more people began withdrawing their money. Next thing you know, they don't have the money to pay people. And when you can't do that, you're out of business. And that's what happened with that sudden collapse of that bank. What that CEO should have done is it got the financing somewhere. And then he could have made a public statement. Yeah, we had to chain more financing to meet, you know, depository needs and regulation uh, reserve requirements. But nope. Uh, all right. So then what happened? We have another bank out there, uh, First Republic, also in San Francisco. They are very similar um, Silicon Valley. And so what's been happening with them, investors have been doing, all depositors have been doing the same thing, withdrawing money right and left. Uh, and so we've had the government's had to intervene and now other banks are trying to keep them afloat. Uh, here, First Republic uh, symbol is FRC, uh, Frank Ralph Charlie. To give you an idea what is going on with these guys, um, back on... February 27th, or we're talking like you know, three weeks, the stock was at $123 a share. It's at $25 a share now, down 25.4%. Uh, what happened, a group of banks uh, have gotten together, 11 banks, and they've committed $30 billion to, to them to try to keep them afloat. Because see, in the other banks, we're talking big banks too, all the big ones, JP Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, and all the big names, uh, Citigroup, uh, Bank of America, uh, just lots of them. Uh, what, what's happened, it's not in their interest to watch another big bank like this go out of business because it'll start spreading through the whole banking system. People may suddenly begin withdrawing their money feeling it's not safe. Uh, now, we do have what's called FDIC insurance, Federal Deposit uh, Insurance Company, uh, or corporation maybe, but anyway, whatever it is. Um, it's been around since 1934. And uh, it, it insures accounts up to $250,000 uh, if the bank fails. But what about bigger accounts? Well, what happened? Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said that um, the government would, would insure uh, accounts at um, Silicon Valley, regardless of the size, but they're not going to do that for future bank failings. So, anyway, that's in a nutshell what's going on. I'll talk more about it on the next session how this stuff works, but hopefully it gives you some idea what is going on. Uh, but is your money safe at your bank? It actually is. Um, 
this is not like 2008 where you had these banks that made all these real estate loans that people couldn't pay back. Most of these banks are very solid. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I wouldn't think there's a need to go out, run out and withdraw your money from the bank. It's limited some more or less to these two in California that were lending money to all these high tech companies. They over lent uh, just lots of stuff. We also have a situation with a Swiss bank, Credit Suisse, but they just got a 30 billion, I think, or so, maybe it's more than that, um, financing from the Swiss government. But I'll talk about that more stuff more in the next time. But that, that's basically what's going on. Okay, so hope everyone's doing well. Again, Bill Thompson, T-Bill, and I'll talk to you again soon. Take care. See ya.